Hello, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, and I'd like to welcome you to the Infectious Diseases Society of America Hepatitis C Knowledge Network webinar podcast series. Today we'll be listening to Arthur Kim, MD, Director of the Viral Hepatitis Clinic, Division of Infectious Diseases, Massachusetts General Hospital, and Assistant Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School, discussing what ID fellows need to know about hepatitis C. Welcome you to the webinar. Uh, this is the Hepatitis C Knowledge Net Network webinar series. And today's speaker is Dr. Arthur Kim. He will be giving a talk on what ID fellows need to know about HPV covering epidemiology, screening, testing, and risk reduction. Uh, but before I turn it over to him, I just need to cover a couple of uh, admin items before we get started. The first is a disclaimer that um, basically is, it relates to the, the talk today and any diagnostic or therapeutic recommendations and all opinions expressed during the IDSA Hepatitis C Knowledge Network are those of the presenters only. They do not necessarily represent the views of IDSA. The webinar attendees must use their own independent professional judgment in making clinical decisions. The webinar attendee assumes all risks in using the information provided. The IDSA Hepatitis C Knowledge Network is in full compliance with HIPAA. IDSA will bear no legal liability for resulting use of the information provided during the webinar. The next item is uh, deals with question and answer. So for the next 30 minutes or so, Dr. Kim will give his presentation. And we encourage questions from the audience. Uh, we'll ask you to submit your questions either using the chat function uh, in the webinar uh, control panel, or there's also a question um, function as well. Either one will work. And towards the end of the, of the presentation, we will, I will then read the questions that have been submitted. Uh, Dr. Kim will, will respond. And then um, up until that point, the, the presentation will be recorded. Uh, and then once all the questions that have been submitted via the chat or question function have ended, if we'll, we'll end the recording. And if uh, you all, uh, attendees want to ask a question or, or some, get some other, uh, some other items discussed, we'll open up the phone line, or you can as well submit through the chat function, and we'll sort of be off record at that point in time, and Dr. Kim can respond to any questions submitted then. Um, the recorded webinar will be available uh, online. Um, we we also make it available as a podcast, although it takes a couple of weeks to get it uh, uh, converted into that format. Uh, but check back uh, on the website for updates and any uh, any of the webinars that are in our archive are available as well. <coughs> Lastly, uh, just to give a, an introduction to the IDSA Hepatitis C Knowledge Network, this is a uh, Roughly um, every month, we offer a one-hour webinar to educate IDSA members on current recommended practices to treat and manage patients infected with hepatitis C virus. Uh, this is intended to be an opportunity for 
the treaters to engage with the experts and discuss issues related to complex patient care and effective treatment. Um, we are able to offer this, uh, this webinar series with support from Vertex, Merck, and Gilead. As I mentioned, uh, these webinars are also available uh, in our archive uh, off the IDSA website. And I believe that's the last of uh, the admin items. I will now turn it over to Dr. Kim, and Thomas will begin the recording. Great. Thank you, Andres, for that uh, introduction. Um, welcome, everybody, who's uh, taken time out of your busy schedules to uh, listen in on this. Uh, I look forward to a very interactive presentation as you look at my disclosures. I will mention that any use of direct acting agents um, are largely off-label, as several have not been approved yet, and I will be talking about treatment of acute infection, which doesn't necessarily fall under uh, labeled use. The objectives of this talk um, are to identify persons at risk for hepatitis C infection, understand who to test and how to test, and outline the epidemiology and basic natural history following hepatitis C infection, and that will help you understand why you're testing. I'll also bring up, as you'll see, uh, several counseling points uh, along the way um, that will hopefully assist you uh, no matter what um, uh, stage you are in and uh, will name strategies that reduce risk for hepatitis C infection um, or disease progression along the way. So um, as the talk goes, um, I know that um, this is directed to fellows. Uh, there is an excellent parallel talk about epidemiology by Mike Sag given um, uh, several months ago that uh, is currently online, and I invite you to also um, listen to that to reinforce it. It's an excellent talk. So I was discussing with a first-year ID fellow this morning uh, what are various bins about what an ID fellow needs to know. And while um, things that you learn may not fall under all of these categories, there are a variety of different um, possibilities to classify your information. There are things that help you survive your workday. There are things that help you survive your call nights. There are things that help you pass the boards. Um, there are things that help you answer attendings' questions. And um, there is a set of knowledge that helps you impress at cocktail parties. Um, but hopefully what you'll find uh, through this talk and the series of talks that will be directed to fellows about hepatitis C, that this will spark your interest. And no matter what your eventual field is, whether it's global health or infection control or not necessarily something where you might be a primary treater of hepatitis C, hopefully you will get something out of this uh, talk. So uh, this is a pager scenario. Uh, let's say you're a fellow and you're a page while during the weekend trying to do your fifth consult of the day by a PCP who works about 50 miles away. He was contacted urgently by a patient concerned about uh, hepatitis C risk. She had attended a party at an acquaintance's house and drank tap water. She later learned that he has hepatitis C, the, the person in the house, and was worried because most houses in the area use well water. So this doctor wants advice on how to counsel her. So do you use Refer the physician to the Wikipedia page on hepatitis C. Google hepatitis C well water. Ask the PCP to page your attending. Or politely state that hepatitis C is not transmitted by waterborne routes. Now, uh, we can't hear if you're chuckling on this webinar format, um, but I hate to say this. This is a real page that uh, was forwarded to me by a fellow on the weekend. And um, so this demonstrates uh, how hepatitis C knowledge, even some of the basics, 
are not necessarily disseminated amongst the medical community, and many surveys do show that. So I hope as a fellow and as a future infectious disease um, uh, specialist, you will become part of the group that helps educate uh, others about hepatitis C. And a major reason why many providers in the medical profession do not have great knowledge about hepatitis C, it's relatively late in terms of when we um, identified it. So we were always aware of post-transfusion hepatitis that occurred uh, uh, after transfusion several weeks afterwards. And those were the most acute cases that would present. And we've later learned that most hepatitis C does not present very symptomatically. And so this was a very silent epidemic during that time, and we'll go over that later. Starting in 1989, when we first had um, molecular identification of hepatitis C, and then uh, derive serologist testing and then RNA testing, that's really the time point at which hepatitis C began to be characterized. So really, all of the knowledge that we have about this uh, has come just simply in the last uh, 20 years or so. Moreover, effective treatments have not been that available until more recently with the advent of regulated interferon in 2001, the first generation protease inhibitors in 2011, and finally, we expect new DAAs in the future. Now, the cell culture system for hepatitis C in terms of a fully infectious cell culture was only in 2005, and so a lot of the science surrounding hepatitis C is also not known. So um, just given this lateness of discovery of hepatitis C and everything, um, you are really here at a time when, when you can help educate persons who did not uh, learn this uh, uh, in the past. So to briefly talk about the virus itself, introduce the main villain in this story, I suppose, is, um, is here. So uh, it belongs to the Flaviviridae family, um, something that you might classify more on the uh, rounds uh, answering questions type of question rather than a board's question, but it is a positively stranded RNA virus that utilizes, as you see here, an RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. And the fact that it never has a DNA intermediate is very important. Um, also, like other uh, viruses with such a, a polymerase, um, it is very error-prone, and that helps define a lot of the biology. Now, returning to this concept of having no DNA intermediate, that means that it doesn't integrate into the nuclei or other types of DNA and will not be passed along just due to cell replication. And therefore, if you eradicate this virus, either by the immune system or by treatment, hepatitis C is curable. And this is really, honestly, one of the first questions often that patients will ask you once given a diagnosis of hepatitis C. And this is a very important point uh, to disseminate. Because I have been um, combating that, uh, as some providers have told um, patients that hep C is not curable. Viruses uh, can also evolve under external pressure due to that error-prone polymerase. And you can imagine a, a viral infection that's causing a trillion of particles a day to be replicated that, that um, uh, simply can change over time, and particularly in response to selection pressures, um, such as by a medication or by uh, the immune response to the virus. And we see this, for instance, um, when antibody responses start to target the envelope, we see uh, mutations in that, in that region of the virus. Uh, similarly, uh, adaptive immune responses to, say, non-structural proteins are also like that, uh, where um, the virus simply mutates around it. And in the centuries that this virus has passed through humans, it has evolved. And it's evolved into various genotypes, and these genotypes are shown here on a phylogenetic tree. Now, it just happens to also have uh, the uh, total phylogeny of hepatitis B viruses and HIV viruses all on the same scale, just to show you the magnitude 
of how different these viruses are from each other, where genotype 1 of hepatitis C contains all the diversity approximately uh, in magnitude as HIV. And this slide was um, uh, kindly shared by Stuart Ray and David Thomas from their chapter. Now, these, this um, genotype um, can allow us to track the infection as it's uh, gone through human populations. And in fact, the viruses differ depending on the region of the world that you're in. And since uh, this is primarily directed at the U.S. audience, uh, it's important to know that genotype 1A predominates in, um, in our country over 1B, uh, although we see 2, 3, and smatterings of 4. But you might see um, uh, different genotypes coming in within immigrant populations. For instance, Egypt, uh, you might see uh, predominantly genotype 4. And immigrants from Asia, particularly uh, Southeast Asia, we find have high rates of genotype 6. Now, to understand the natural history of hepatitis C after infection, I've already told you that um, it is a clearable infection. And in fact, it is clearable by the immune system in a subset of individuals, and we'll go over that more later. And the classic textbook response is to say that about 20% of all comers clear the virus. Now, of those who go on to chronic infection, um, it's important to point out that many do have stable or slowly progressive disease and will never reach cirrhosis. However, a good percentage over decades will re reach cirrhosis, and perhaps 20 over 20% over 20 years. And um, that process of going from this inflammatory state, shown here, uh, to the hardness, uh, to the hardening of the liver and the fibrotic state, leads one to the complications of uh, liver failure, uh, esophageal bleeding, ascites, hepatic encephalopathy, all potentially life-threatening uh, complications, hepatocellular carcinoma, which is uh, growing in our country. There's some nice slides in Dr. Sag's talk discussing that. And this places patients at risk of death. Now, this process does take decades. However, there are several things that can accelerate the process. And they include other liver diseases, such as um, regular alcohol use. And, and studies have shown that regular alcohol use accelerates that process. Uh, fatty liver is an important process. And with the uh, obesity epidemic that's also striking our country, this is a very important point. Uh, Co-infections with HIV or Hep B also accelerate this. So this brings up a couple of counseling points that are important for fellows, and that persons with chronic hepatitis C infection should be counseled to minimize and or abstain from alcohol and avoid weight gain. Now, let's talk a little bit more about the outcomes of acute hepatitis C. Since I uh, have noticed that ID fellows are often on the front lines and may be in a position to identify acute hepatitis C rather than patients in the chronic phase, so if you see here, the first thing that happens after uh, an infection is that the HCV RNA appears in serum before the antibodies. And here it's shown in months, uh, usually uh, in persons without, uh, say, HIV. The antibodies do appear a bit sooner than that. But nonetheless, uh, what you're seeing here is a seronegative window where a patient has uh, no antibodies but has a positive RNA. Now, after an ALT spike, which is shown uh, quite largely here, I do have to say that many patients do not have very marked uh, spikes of ALT, even if you're testing very regularly, such as monthly. And so some patients have seroconverted uh, with ALTs that do not go uh, incredibly high. Nonetheless, um, if a patient can clear or recover from the infection, you can see that the ALT generally normalizes, the RNA becomes negative or undetectable, and the HCV antibody remains positive. And so that is a profile that you'll often see for patients who are virally cleared. It's important to point out that multiple studies show, uh, following patients recently infected show that the viral clearance occurs about 80% of the time in the first six months. 
Another nicely done study done in a, um, a, a Baltimore in a cohort of injection drug users followed very regularly showed that if you have spontaneous clearance, uh, that is also associated with protection from infection. And this is an uh, interesting counseling point um, that uh, uh, many providers don't know, um, that if uh, one has, let's say, cleared one virus, they might be able to clear the virus again uh, in a shorter time frame and more rapidly. And that indicates that there's some ability uh, for a secondary immune response to respond to another challenge. So the factors that are associated with this viral clearance include being a woman, being younger in age, being non-African American, being immunocompetent at baseline, presenting with jaundice, and that correlates with the uh, onset of a brisk immune response that uh, produces jaundice, um, but that only happens in the um, minority of individuals infected acutely with hepatitis C. And there's a variety of studies um, showing that cell-mediated immunity is important. You notice that the antibody is positive regardless of whether you clear or not, so those antibodies are not considered protective. It's really more about the cell-mediated rather than the humoral immune response, although there are uh, elements of humoral immunity that might be important. There are also genes that are important. We won't talk much about this. Uh, there, it might be mentioned in other talks, but uh, interleukin-28b, or interferon lambda, is, uh, which is associated with treatment response to interferon-based therapies, is also associated with spontaneous clearance. So um, the usual outcome after acute hepatitis C is this, where, the, again, the antibodies remain positive. However, the patient has uh, what you can see here as a kind of set-point viral load, which doesn't fluctuate much. And then ALT activity, which can be in that sort of a uh, couple times greater the upper limit of normal range, not very high. And that is what they're probably used to seeing. Now, um, that defines how we test for hepatitis C. And this is a fairly straightforward paradigm that I'm sure uh, you've all been following for quite some time. But um, you use the antibody first. And if non-reactive, uh, you can basically say stop at that point, that there's no antibody detected. And we'll talk about situations where that's not uh, where you stop. Um, but if it is reactive, you move on to confirm current hepatitis C infection, which is RNA positivity. And if that's not detected, well, you probably don't have um, current hepatitis C infection. It might represent a spontaneous clearance or exposure in the past. And then additional testing, that's the um, arm on your right, may be appropriate if their patients have ongoing risk. Uh, if it's detected, uh, you are defined as current hepatitis C infection, and it will be very important to link those patients to some sort of care regarding that. Um, now, um, it's, I'd also point out that this report, um, this update in MMWR, does talk about rapid testing as an alternative, which has excellent uh, sensitivity and specificity uh, compared to uh, traditional enzyme immunoassays. So there are potential issues with these testing strategies. And uh, first of all, with the antibody testing, they may be false negative, and you should perk up here because there are potential boards questions uh, embedded in these two uh, red, reddened uh, word um, phrases here. So there's acute hepatitis C infection during the seronegative window already explained, but also immunosuppression. Uh, so particularly uh, HIV-positive persons, there's a certain subset that don't generate antibody responses, particularly if you have low CD4 counts under 200. Uh, false positives also, um, by definition, are hep C RNA negative because their hep C RNA is used to um, uh, confirm an infection. And these will often have a low signal-to-cutoff ratio. Now, we used to use a test um, called Ariba um, to, define, to help define this, but at this point, this is no longer available. With RNA testing, you may be falsely negative, as uh, I'll show you. It can, may be transiently negative in the acute phase. 
And so for in certain circumstances, I would advise more than one test uh, for hepatitis RNA to confirm spontaneous clearance. Now, one aspect, um, if you have spontaneously cleared and you're at risk for reinfection, you can't use the antibody anymore because that may just simply be positive. Uh, so you have to use RNA testing for reinfection. Okay, so this is a case of someone who presented um, uh, a stylized case of, um, uh, with a very high ALT. And this is an, uh, happens to be, a, uh, let's say, an HIV-positive individual who um, uh, was coming in for routine blood work. And he had been in 10 weeks earlier and had a normal ALT just as part of that routine blood work. At this time, though, uh, he was feeling a little viral. Uh, turns out he was a little bit jaundiced, but nobody really noticed at that time. And uh, his ALT is quite markedly elevated. So this is a very clear-cut case of hepatitis C as the patient then proceeds to sero of acute hepatitis C, I should say, as the patient proceeds to seroconvert, uh, go from negative to positive, and then the, um, the virus, uh, the immune system tries to fight off the virus, as you see here, but ultimately um, uh, loses the battle, so to speak, um, by week 32. Now, looking closely, let's say this patient um, you know, comes in any time during this early part. Well, this is a fairly easy diagnosis because you respond to the ALT, you'll check the antibody, and perhaps because you're aware that he's at risk, you would check the RNA as well. Um, now, let's just say that um, the patient put off his lab appointment and came in at this point. All right, so now the ALT is elevated, but it's not in the 2000 range. So, uh, and the patient's feeling better, so will you respond to it right away? And that, remember, that's the only thing you're testing at that time. Uh, you might uh, pursue that with the additional testing that would then define a new hepatitis C diagnosis. If he came in on this day, however, the ALT is normal. And so um, uh, it's still clearly an acute case of hepatitis C, but it shows you the potential limitations of relying just on a single test to define acute hepatitis C as at any one time point, lab values may resemble chronic declared infection. Another clue to acute hepatitis C infection um, is the potential for a lowish viral load. So if you see um, viral loads that are uh, lower than the usual range in chronicity, which averages around 1 million international units per milliliter, you can see here that uh, positive values during the acute phase may be much lower. And while there's clearly overlap to these two um, groups, um, you might have a higher suspicion if you see a value, let's say, around 10,000 that might have a better specificity for acute infection than chronic infection. Again, um, but that's just one piece of the story. Now, uh, it's important to point out that treatment outcomes are much better in acute disease versus chronic disease, and this is a rationale to continue to um, encounter those with acute disease, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, as I don't want that to get lost in the shuffle of testing for um, sort of current or later disease. So the SVR, or the sustained virologic response, is much higher when treating in the acute phase when you're looking at peg pegylated interferon or actually just basic interferon, maybe used sometimes in this setting, um, regardless of the genotype uh, compared to treating in the chronic phase. And this is using shorter courses uh, because they're more effective and they also, uh, because they're shorter, have less toxicity and less cost. We don't know at this point whether the same principles of um, equal or better efficacy um, with shortened courses will apply in the direct acting antiviral era, um, but this is an area that might be explored in the future. Now to define acute hepatitis C, clearly if you see seroconversion, especially during the illness, that is a clear-cut case, almost no matter what the other values show. So repeat testing of high-risk patients with antibodies may be helpful, now um, if, if initially negative for that seronegative window. Now, 
recent illness consistent with acute hepatitis C. So the patient reports that they felt jaundiced or had, uh, or they had, uh, they turned yellow in the mirror, and they had dark urine, and they have a report that sounds like they had acute hepatitis C, and they had testing recently. Now the new testing is positive. Well, that also really classifies it as a very highly likely or almost definite acute hepatitis C infection. Now, highly probable generally applies when no prior testing was available. So in this case, you really need to go to the history. So recent onset or changes in high-risk behaviors, in this case, let's say an uh, injection, uh, a person who injects drugs um, will report that they just started doing that. And so you'll say, well, maybe you have acute hepatitis C. Or they had a new partner whose serostatus was a little unclear. And so these are clues that will help one uh, define acute hepatitis C. Now, if someone goes um, from RNA positive to spontaneous clearance, that also helps define it. And with the other supporting data, you might see those viral fluctuations, like you might, like I showed you in the prior patient graph. Uh, you don't see those kind of fluctuations in chronic disease. Ultimately, acute hepatitis C, uh, as defined as identification in the first six months, is a clinical diagnosis that requires a high um, uh, index of suspicion and a good history. And you as ID fellows all know how important that history is. You've taken a lot of great histories uh, about animals and travel and whatnot. In this case, uh, specific habits um, may be very helpful to um, identify patients in this stage and refer them for counseling and for uh, potential treatment interventions. So now that you're equipped with uh, how to test for hepatitis C, let's go over more in detail who is at risk for hepatitis C infection. Now, the uh, transmission of hepatitis C can fall broadly into these three categories, uh, the primary being a parenteral uh, type of exposure, uh, perinatal transmission, or sexual transmission. It's important to point out that other chronic viruses share these risk factors, and I would argue that those with HIV or hepatitis B infection should also be tested for hepatitis C uh, if identified with those infections. So um, let's go over these uh, each. Um, the first will be the least efficient mode of transmission in general, which is sexual transmission of hepatitis C. Now, uh, early studies, in, um, after uh, we had the tools to look at this, looked at hemophiliacs, so these male hemophiliacs and their female partners, and they examined the uh, seroprevalence of hepatitis C and HIV. And you can see that HIV was more efficiently transmitted, indicating how HIV is much better at um, uh, crossing mucosal surfaces sexually uh, than hepatitis C. However, if the hepatitis C was present in the female, um, it, was, it was associated with the female also having HIV. And so HIV seems to have been a facilitator for hepatitis C in that setting. At least there's a hint of it in that study. However, in the HIV negative situation, monogamous heterosexual couples with discordant hepatitis C status, the risk was recently estimated by a study uh, emanating out of Nora Terrell uh, group in, at UCSF estimated about 1 in 190,000 sex contacts to, to produce one transmission of hepatitis C. 190,000 sex contacts sounds like more sex for, than uh, one needs for a lifetime, so this risk is very low. On the basis of such studies, generally guidelines do not recommend barriers for discordant monogamous heterosexual couples, um, and th this is a, actually a frequent uh, recommendation made by primary care physicians to uh, the situation. So. Uh, but the guidelines do not support that. There is a situation where sexual transmission occurs, and this is uh, amongst HIV-positive men who have sex with men. This basically represents a syndemic of a variety of forces, uh, sex, drugs, and HIV, uh, not rock and roll, sex, drugs, and HIV, which uh, promote um, hepatitis C tran sexual transmission. 
as many people acquire it without ever actually injecting drugs. This includes very bloody and traumatic practices uh, to the mucosa um, and, a, uh, and a variety of other forces driving this. And I I'll, I'll, um, uh, don't have much time to talk about this, but I'll return to it at the end. Perinatal transmission. So uh, rates are often quoted at around 5% um, with a range. HIV hep C co-infected mothers are indeed at higher risk, um, uh, often quoted as 19%. Now, uh, this may be related to the magnitude of the viral titer um, and possibly to premature rupture of membranes, although the effect sizes are not incredibly high in these cases. It's very important also to point out that breastfeeding is not associated with increased risk of neonatal or a perinatal, I should say, hepatitis C um, uh, transmission. So uh, uh, another thing that a primary care has told a recent uh, patient of mine. Um, there's amniocentesis. Uh, there's some concerns regarding that. Just avoid inserting the needle through the placenta. As of now, no intervention is currently recommended. So amongst pregnant women, we are advised just to screen high-risk women. However, in a busy OB practice, it's very hard to do that. Uh, so, and we're also supposed to screen uh, babies born to hepatitis C positive mothers. Um, but it, uh, antibodies are not the way to screen, as um, at least in the first 18 months, those antibodies may represent just maternal antibodies. Now let's turn to the primary mode of transmission by needles. And this rule of threes is a great mnemonic to help remember uh, the risk after needle stick. From a high viral load, usually E antigen positive hepatitis B patient, the risk was up to 30%. Fortunately, um, we're all immunized now as healthcare workers against that virus. There is no vaccine for us for hepatitis C, and that rate is about one log lower and HIV one log lower than that. Now, this has been recently reviewed, and the true rate is between 1% to 2%. That kind of ruins the mnemonics, but uh, perhaps it's um, still okay to round up to 3%. Um, the infectivity of um, hepatitis C um, has not been incredibly well studied uh, for a variety of reasons, but finally using the cell culturable strain of hepatitis C, this was placed in different syringes at a variety of temperatures just to see if one could recover virus. And in this case, in the majority of syringes, one uh, stored at certain temperatures, you could still get live virus able to uh, infect the cell culture line uh, eight weeks later. And uh, hepatitis C seems uniquely able to stay within the context of a syringe, uh, explaining its uh, uh, predilection for being transmitted by that setting. That also explains the association with injection drug use. And this is a nice um, meta-analysis of many, many studies that looked at uh, seroconversion following initiation of, of um, injection drugs uh, done by Holly Hagen in New York. And before 1995, you can see that in the first year, almost half of individuals seroconverted, and then the rate just continues to rise, where if you're using drugs for 15 years, uh, often people will slip up and get exposed and contract hepatitis C. Even at that low 1% rate, you keep doing it every day. This, this, um, uh, is likely to happen. Interestingly, she looked uh, and compared studies post-1995, which correlated with the rollout of, um, uh, of a variety of prevention messages to the injection drug using community. And overall, um, the rates were lower. So there's both uh, good news on this slide in that things did get better after certain public health messages and interventions uh, were out. However, uh, the bad news is that it's still uh, not quite inevitable but um, uh, still very probable that one acquires hepatitis C. It is, though, not inevitable, and that's an important message, as um, I've heard many um, people teach, um, some of my colleagues teach, that it's about 90% in the first year. That's not quite true. It's 90% over time. 
But hepatitis C is a global health problem that reaches, uh, in this estimate, about 170 million carriers done by the uh, World Health Organization. How does one reach that when uh, that does not, um, uh, 170 million people throughout the world have not injected drugs? So uh, you can see the burden is um, uh, in Asia, uh, particularly in Africa as well. Now, of course, the majority of people are in Asia. Now, I wish this were interactive, as I usually ask here, the audience, uh, which country um, has the highest prevalence that we know of hepatitis C in the world? Um, well, um, it turns out that it's Egypt. And is that a country that you associate with injection drugs? Well, it shouldn't be, because it isn't. Um, and in fact, the epidemiology is inverted for where, where you would expect any injection drugs in this country to be. So for instance, you see here that the more rural areas up the uh, Nile River Valley had higher prevalences of hepatitis C. Um, you can see how uh, kind of ridiculously high this is in Egypt, where it's greater than um, 10%. And this is um, largely due to well-intentioned uh, medical interventions. And this is a picture of people lining up for uh, an old injectable treatment to treat uh, schistosomiasis in the upper Nile. And providers would simply uh, keep injecting patients, not with the same needles. We knew to clean them. They would throw them in a bin, get them bleached. But those, the volume was such, as they were trying to do entire villages uh, regularly, that the same needle would return to the line within an hour. This is not a situation in which hepatitis C was easily sterilized. And so one can even look at the exposure index or the number of um, um, uh, uh, injections that were given in this region and see a correlation with the uh, prevalence of hepatitis C in this sense. So if you think about needle use, and uh, back in the days we used to actually bleed patients and whatnot, um, but um, in this case um, you see that blood transfusion really started to rise once we figured out ABO and compatibility. And the First World War accelerated that. And then modern blood banking started. And, and blood banks uh, initially uh, often used paid donors, which comes into play in a moment. But then the last century saw rises of massive amounts of injections on a grand scale, as well as other bloodborne potential exposures through dialysis and other means. And um, with the onset post-World War II, uh, earlier in Japan and then later in the West, of injection drug use, and particularly heroin use, one saw first the, the recognition of non-A, non-B hepatitis, and then uh, finally entrance of bloodborne viruses. And it was HIV, really, in that, that, that um, brought, brought this um, problem up to the forefront. And it's only at that point where um, things such as universal precautions or care with um, exposure to patients' blood uh, came into play. However, with the use of paid blood donors um, who uh, sometimes would use drugs and come back and regular donate blood and introduce it into the supply, you can really see how a, a system that's applying billions of ejections a year, a medical system, may promote hepatitis C virus. You can almost describe that 20th century as the injection century with massive unsterile injections and the emergence of human pathogens. However, this continues. Or even um, recently, you can see this picture taken of uh, children salvaging syringes out of the trash in, a, in an area where there's not sharks buckets or proper control of needle and um, meant for reuse. So medical exposures account for a substantial burden of hepatitis C transmission worldwide. Uh, if you just go through the number, 16 billion injections, many people um, uh, receiving a variety of things from potentially multi-use vials, reuse the syringes, uh, whatever it is that's suboptimal in terms of infection control, at least 3 million new cases uh, attributable worldwide. Now, interestingly, in some uh, countries have either um, have published that when they look at series of acute hepatitis C, 
sometimes the main risk factor is not injection drug use, but was a recent medical procedure, not even a blood transfusion, just going in for surgery. And so we really have to be care careful in our hospitals to, uh, to uh, not return to the situation where we were really um, uh, amplifying the hepatitis C epidemic. However, it does happen in the United States. So this was a case in Las Vegas you may have heard about where injection practices were very unsafe, uh, resulting in acute hepatitis C infections, and they had to do a massive callback of people to this private practice colonoscopy clinic. You know, there's no safety officer checking on needle safety there. There's no uh, JCO um, uh, accrediting this unit. And so just those practices eroded to the point where this um, unfortunately um, transmitted hepatitis C from patient to patient. That is what happened in Vegas, stay in Vegas, not in this case. So uh, there are cases in Florida and Colorado and other places, uh, even uh, locally here in New Hampshire, where, uh, near where I practice, of um, uh, diversion of healthcare workers uh, within the healthcare system infecting patients. And even more recently, uh, dental practice, which had very poor sterilization techniques, we've been able to document the first dental patient-to-patient -patient transmission of hepatitis C if one is not careful. So those of you going into hospital infection control or establishing clinics out in uh, places, really these safety practices are paramount. Now in the United States, with that um, a large number of people being infected, first through the heroin epidemic, but also through uh, hospital-based means, there were a large number of infections per year. This declined once we were able to test blood supply, we changed the, um, the blood uh, donor um, pool and made it a volunteer process. There were also declines detected in injection drug users, and so since uh, the mid-90s it has returned to a much lower rate. However, that big bolus of patients, so to speak, that were infected can be represented here. If you do a cross-sectional survey in 1990, you see that 4% of persons in their 30s are, uh, have evidence of hepatitis C exposure. And um, then if you do repeat that survey 10 years later, you see that they're simply in their 40s. If you repeat that 10 years later, which is approximately today, now this bolus of patients is in their 50s. And if you talk about an infection that takes 20, 30, 40 years, these patients are about to reach that cliff, so to speak, of um, liver-related events and mortality. You can parse this further by uh, in a variety of groups and invite you to look at this a little bit more in detail later. But males are more at risk than females. Um, blacks are more at risk than um, non-blacks, and these are a variety of other factors that you can associate with the risks for hepatitis C, including the strongest uh, injection drug use. Now, um, this is a, a home-based survey of about um, uh, that, that, so you needed a phone to kind of get into the survey, and so this excludes naturally patients with very high um, um, rates of hepatitis C in the prisons and in homeless populations, et cetera. And so the true number is probably higher than 1.6%. Uh, this is just a graph adding up with some risk factors. If you're a, a non-Hispanic black at that time in your 40s, so today would be in your 50s, you can see very high rates of hepatitis C. And this burden, which is very well described in more in detail in Dr. Sag's talk, is upon us now with uh, um, perhaps between 3 to 4 million people at risk of uh, chronic viremia, cirrhosis, and um, you can see the, uh, the problems that, that, that are um, going to, are already hitting our healthcare system. And many of you as first-year fellows or as fellows uh, clearly have trained recently in internal medicine, you may be experiencing this in your community, the increased deaths, increases in decompensated liver disease uh, and hepatocellular carcinoma. 
to the point where now hepatitis C exceeds HIV as the cause of death in the United States. Now, in our state, we see that same sort of peak. If you looked in 2000, at that time, it'd be, again, a peak in your 40s, two to one male to female ratio. And this is from our state surveillance system, which captures, uh, tries to capture all cases of hepatitis C. Now, this um, describes a match from that system, which is called NAVEN, to the death records. And um, if you, um, you, they also calculate the time between hepatitis C diagnosis and death uh, based on the first entrance into the NAVEN system and the death. Now, what's remarkable is that um, you see the death curve here by age, that there's this great peak and this great excess mortality that's occurring in patients in their late 40s and early 50s and throughout their 50s. Um, the normal curve should basically uh, not contain that big, large bump there in terms of the death curve. The other remarkable thing is how many patients died within three years of entrance into the system, uh, and many of them likely new diagnoses. And the, the, the sheer numbers here are much higher in our state than those um, uh, in a similar fashion dying of, uh, uh, shortly after HIV reporting. So one loses about 22 years of life with uh, reported hepatitis C diagnosis in our state, and there's some other studies that corroborate that. I hope this convinces you that hepatitis C is a problem, and uh, for many people, this will be uh, something that needs to be identified, um, uh, especially as mortality right now in Massachusetts far surpasses that with HIV, um, and that um, uh, uh, one, the diagnosis or engagement care is often very shortly before that mortality. And so patients do need to be identified as soon as possible, largely because we know from a variety of surveys that about um, uh, only a quarter to at most 50% of those infected with hepatitis C are aware of their diagnosis. And uh, as you know, so, uh, liver fibrosis is asymptomatic and patients may not present until it is too late. And um, what happens if, if you don't identify patients? Well, uh, you just keep multiplying these fractions where only a fraction of patients are linked to care, et cetera and only a fraction of patients linked to care get the proper testing, get through the evaluation, get treated, and achieve an SVR. So even if we can get the SVR rate to, let's say, 90 to 100%, as you'll hear about in other talks talking about treatment, if you don't work on those upstream factors, you're not going to have a major impact on the epidemic. So this is a big reason why hepatitis C screening did not work very well. This is a long list. You can read look at this later, but in terms of patients who should be considered for screening, this is very hard for a primary care uh, physician to remember. Moreover, you're trying to figure out if a patient has used injection drug use even once, are they likely to report it if it happened 20 to 30 years ago? Probably not. And for a variety of reasons, including just reliance on LFT is not enough, uh, the lack of reportable risk factors, even per CDC data, at least 10%, uh, and the fact that nosocomial exposures back then were, complete, were ubiquitous, usually you don't get that history uh, specifically, and providers have multiple competing interests, they have um, knowledge gaps and time constraints, and uh, also the patient underreporting, as we mentioned. So the main strategy for hepatitis C identification is here, where you'll look in the baby boomer cohort, or those born between 1945 and 1965. There you'll find two-thirds of those living with hepatitis C, and uh, most of the deaths as well. And a one-time antibody test is sufficient as antibodies remain elevated for the duration of infection as described before, and most patients in this age group lack ongoing risk, so you don't need to test them again once negative. Um, and there's a chance to intervene. And truly, the chance to intervene is, um, is shown here, where you can uh, decrease the number of deaths. This is obviously a modeling projection. We don't know we can do this yet, but if you applied 
a certain assumption that a certain fraction of people get linked from the, from the baby boomer screen and can um, get treated, you can avert over 100,000 deaths at, at an incremental cost-effectiveness ratio that's reasonable compared to other medical interventions. And when talking, as um, you might to try to convince someone to do a baby boomer screen, how cost-effective is it compared to other primary care interventions? Well, um, even with the older, now cheaper treatments of PEG interferon ribavirin, uh, it's about the same as checking the blood pressure. Whereas with the increased cost of currently available antivirals for genotype 1, it's about the same as checking the pap smear. Unfortunately, in our state, we're experiencing a second epidemic. Um, uh, if you look seven years later, the number of cases that are in people under 30 has risen to the point where we have a bimodal distribution. And unfortunately, in the state of 6.5 million, we're seeing over 1,000 cases a year in this younger age group. This is happening throughout the state. It's not isolated to urban settings. We know our geography is not all in one place in Boston or in Worcester and whatnot. And in fact, there are many um, more suburban or rural counties that are affected. And this is due to this uh, phenomenon where we are seeing transition from opiates we first of all saw an increase in uh, opiate-related overdoses in our state of about four times, uh, a four to five time increase. And this perfectly correlates with the, uh, the use of uh, opiates out there. And um, when you look at hardcore drug users, it turns out that many um, persons actually first will use um, uh, uh, pain relievers or opiates as their first initiated substances that leads them later to, uh, uh, um, to substance abuse uh, pathways later. Uh, this now uh, almost exceeds marijuana in recent surveys. It never used to look like this. And so we see this new um, uh, transition from pills and then to intranasal, then IV, and then the various sequelae that come with um, regular injection drug use of opiates. And uh, you may see this uh, increasing in certain communities, endocarditis and other blood-borne viruses. And the CDC does see um, now, uh, by the way they count their cases, which is a subset of cases do get reported to them. They are reliant on states, which may have limited resources to report these new cases. But acute hepatitis C may be rising and is an exurban phenomenon per their reckoning, a one-to-one male-to-female ratio, et cetera. So ideally for this population, the highest risk pe um, people who inject drugs, there are a variety of um, um, elements of a toolbox to, um, to reduce hepatitis C burden. And this includes regular testing and all the things you might intuit in terms of uh, access to clean injecting equipment, uh, et cetera. So um, this is an important problem in many parts of our country. And I'd like to um, uh, sort of begin our closing talking about the myths associated with um, um, PWID, that they're all infected with hepatitis C anyway, they'll never get the treatment, or they'll simply get reinfected. There's a very nice uh, recent CID series of articles in a supplement that um, basically debunk these myths. And if you treat, at least a modeling study suggests that you might be able to decrease prevalence. So this might, um, if you're able to treat, let's say, one in a hundred um, people who inject drugs annually, you might be able to decrease prevalence. Raising the question, can treatment as prevention, such as that, may HIV be applied? So this is what we're seeing in terms of the epidemiology and a major take-home message. This first cohort within the baby boom, uh, many still don't know it, and premature death. And then this new cohort of individuals, uh, the risk factor-based screening that you'll have to apply in certain areas of our country. And so we should screen for these reasons, for the new epidemic they may transmit to others. The end-stage liver disease is a great burden on the healthcare system, and it's a leading cause of liver cirrhosis and, and death. Um, and um, even if they're not going to die soon, uh, it's still early identification may be helpful for linkage to care. 
and for other reasons. And we can do something about it. In addition to the counseling messages we talked about, uh, cure is associated with a decline. And thus, you should add born between 1945-65 to your, the people that you screen for hepatitis C. In HIV-positive MSM, uh, a group that you'll often encounter as a fellow, these are some uh, areas in which to improve our identification, screen for the behaviors. If anyone presents, let's say, with an STD, uh, testing for hepatitis C. Uh, yearly antibodies are recommended, including recently by primary care guidelines that just came out last week. And then uh, react to changes in liver function tests. And there's a very similar profile for those who inject drugs, that this is an area to screen for particular behaviors and, not, and get into the details of who they share with and those kind of things. They might give you a clue that it's the acute phase. And uh, let them know uh, about uh, a good history can help diagnose acute hepatitis C. We showed that in a recent uh, uh, strategy looking in the prisons. And RNA is important as patients. That's what defines infectivity, not the antibody. And patients, uh, people who inject drugs often base their behaviors based on that. So I'd like to stop there. Uh, I realize I did run over. I hope I uh, will be glad to stay on uh, longer to take questions. Thank you very much. So for the Infectious Diseases Society of America, I am Dr. Neil Skolnick, and I hope you have continued to find the Hepatitis C Knowledge Network webinar podcast series useful and continue to check back for further topics.